Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to study this this subject so that we understand more about who you are and how you operated in our salvation. What an amazing thing to study. And Lord, we ask that you'll help us to get much out of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Review. What is the goal of studying the doctrines of grace? Anybody remember? Probably not. It is to discover the true identity and character of the God that we worship. So it's not just an accumulation of knowledge. Now, in my view, it's common sense that if a person is going to worship a God, they should know who that God is. But it's also something that God expects of us, is to know him. I mean, that profound verse in Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. So, you would think that this idea of going to the Word of God to discover who God is would be mainstream, you know, common sense. But that's not the case. People tend to do the opposite. Instead of looking at the scripture to find out who God is, they unilaterally decide who God is and then they try to cram scripture to fit that. But given our culture, it's not really unexpected, is it? I mean, designing a God that meets our preferences is a logical outcome of the priorities of our culture. I mean, everything is about us, what we like, what we think, what we value. We can have designer clothes and a designer God. <laughs> Why? Because I'm the ultimate. In short, I am awesome. So I've asked Eric to give a little example of this. And Eric, would you mind? An event happened at one of my schools last semester that I told my discipleship brothers about, and Bruce asked me just to tell you what happened. So there was a big event, big event, a lot of fanfare, a lot of decoration on the playground, a lot of decoration at the pavilion. And I didn't know what was up, neither did my team. There was just a big hoopla going on. So I walk over there, and um, all the volunteers are designing, you know, these, these cutout stars, okay, about that big. And they, you know, one by one, the classes were coming out and sitting at the tables and filling them out. And I noticed over by the uh, office, they were making a giant uh, billboard, just a big display, maybe the size, the entire size of that uh, partition curtain. And so, okay, so I, you know, I go back to the room, I come out later, and they're they're starting to post these things, okay, and so. You know, it's on the way to the adult restroom, so I walked by it, and I just started glancing at it. And every single one of them said in crayon, it started, I'm awesome because, and then I guess the kid had to write whatever they've been told or even maybe even think they're awesome about. So what you have then is a giant billboard with 
a bunch of it's almost like a, a glorified participation award where you're being encouraged to exalt yourself and so in my conspiratorial mind I'm thinking why are they doing this why are they doing this why pump kids up artificially and ask them to feel proud of just being you, you know you think your parents love and love your family you know fortifies these kids so I don't think it's about some sort of perceived deficit in their ego or their uh, you know being so then the question is and I'm, I'm asking myself this as I'm walking across the playground why are you doing this and I think it has something to do forgive me with the with the worldview that's being imparted to these kids among other many worldviews where merit and excellence are devalued under the banner of diversity now what do I mean by that what I mean by that is everything everyone and has equal value there is no excellence everything is the same watered down nothing and I think that if you start and these kids were like from kindergarten up okay the entire school if you, if you start believing that I'm great, you, you might start believing I'm entitled. And if you start believing I'm entitled, then any sort of uh, critique of anything, you know, you have a reflex action against it. So I think this is kind of what we're seeing, where um, not many things have value, and excellence in the traditional sense is devalued. So what you're left with, with, you know, I think, is that you, you raise a generation of kids in the schools who are told to feel proud just because and no other reason. And there is no hierarchy of achievement or merit or excellence. And I think this ties in perfectly with a Marxist worldview where everyone is equally down here, you know, and there is no value in... Um, advancement or achievement. Obviously this is at right angles with the, a biblical worldview which teaches us that all are fallen and all fall short. And all, and especially believers, we need to be humble in the sight of God even though we fail at it all the time. But it's a scary thing, you know. Um, so that's, that's, that was my thinking on it. Oh, oh, and one more thing. Some adults took it upon themselves to fill these out in much the same vein and post them where adults congregate, like in the men's room. So when I go in the men's room these days, it's still there. In the mirror are two giant stars. One says, you are awesome, written by an adult, I can tell. And the other one says, you deserve all the happiness in the world. And of course, my response is, wow, I guess I do. So this kind of, you know, fits into what you probably say, what does this have to do with Calvinism or the doctrines of grace? Well, it does. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a guy named Carl Truman, who's uh, one of my favorite authors, he exposed the progressive shaping of the culture going back centuries. Talked about people named Rousseau and this and that that I've never even heard of. And this concept that, that every god is his own, every person is the god of their own existence, essentially. And is thus entitled to make every decision about their lives on their own. And this god of self has virtually no transcendent authority to overrule any of their decisions. They can decide if they want to be a boy or a girl or an it. 
They can decide if they want to marry a boy or a girl or an it. They can decide literally whether a baby lives or dies based on their convenience. Why? Because I'm awesome. So now here's where it dovetails into this idea of, of uh, the doctrines of grace. Is it any wonder that even some of the most mainline Christian denominations cling to this idea that people choose God rather than God choosing them? Because the idea of God choosing them and that they are not in control is a repulsive idea to our culture. And they have to really do some mental gymnastics to get there, too. I mean, John 15, 16 lays it out. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Pretty um, black and white in my, my mind. And that's the essential difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. In Calvinism, God chooses who he will elect to save. Arminians believe that God merely holds out salvation as an option and that man has the final say. Now, remember, Arminianism is not a marginal thing. Probably 70% of all people identifying as Christians are Arminian. Now, non-Calvinists will talk as if Calvinism was invent invented by Calvin. But that's like saying Calvin invented God. Calvinism is just a distillation of what the Bible says about how God operates in salvation. Now, you only have to read through books, uh, books like Romans and Ephesians to see this theme of how God operates and that God is the controlling factor in salvation. But here's the rub. Armenians can give you a string of proof texts also that they say support their own beliefs. But as I hope you all get by the time we get through this series on Calvinism, that these proof texts rest on a series of mis er, misinterpretations. And then the main reasons for these misinterpretations is that they either refuse to consider the passages that go against their belief system, or they simply lift these passages completely out of context. Now, growing up in an Arminian-leaning church, I once asked my pastor, I said, Pastor, why don't you ever speak on Romans 9? Which is a very strong proof text for Calvinist doctrine. And he said, uh, well, most people miss, have a hard time understanding that chapter. And what I said was, oh, I guess that makes sense. Now, what I wanted to say was, dude, or reverend dude, <laughs> You're a pastor. If it's hard to, for us to understand, explain it to us. I mean, why would a pastor skip over an entire chapter of the Bible when the Bible, when the Bible exhorts them to preach the entire counsel of God? 
Now, my answer, to be nice, Romans 9, shall we say, is inconvenient for an Arminian. To be not so nice, I would say that most Arminians wish Romans 9 wasn't in the Bible. Because it just doesn't work for them. I want to read a bit of that chapter to drive this home. For this is what the promise said. And this is God talking, uh, I mean, this is Paul, and he's talking about uh, what God said to Abraham and, and the people back in the Old Testament. And this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Does everybody know where this is coming from? And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told, the older child will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so that it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's the answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel to honor and one to dishonor? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make, his, to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? Now that's a sobering passage if your idea of God is warm and fuzzy, isn't it? But if the true goal is to understand, to discover and understand who God is from the Bible, then we must take that into account, right? We can't just go to our favorite verses. And that means we need to read the Bible in context. We can't, you can run around saying Jesus loves you to every person on the street just because John 3.16 says God so loved the world. But then what do you do with Esau I have hated? What do you do with, I hate all workers of iniquity? Even John 3.16 has to be read in its context in order for us to understand it. Now, all of this aside, it's interesting to me that most Arminians in, that are close to our belief system claim that they affirm some of the points of Calvinism. I mean, my pastor for one, he called himself a four-point Calvinist. Um, and he was always quoting Charles Spurgeon, unless, until it became an issue. 
But as you'll see as we progress through these lessons, that the doctrines of grace rise or fall on just one point. You either one is right and they're all right, or one is wrong and they're all wrong. So at the risk of being repetitive, I want to again go through each point briefly. And this is because I, I really want to under, have you understand the whole before we start to drill down on each point. And what I'll do this time, uh, last time I just I went through each one of the points and just gave the Calvinistic view. I'm going to give you the, the Calvinistic view, the support, a supporting verse, and then I'm going to give you the Arminian rebuttal to that. So let's start off with total depravity. If you remember, this, this is built on the um, acronym TULIP. First, the T is total depravity. Our sinful corruption runs so deep and so strong that it makes us slaves to sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says, or he says, we ourselves, so he's talking about Christians. This inability is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion. Romans 8.23 for, says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now the, so that's the Calvinistic view. We could not do it. We were enslaved. Arminian view, the fall rendered man damaged, and sinful, but not necessarily a slave. Men are not beyond seeing value of God, seeking him and responding to the author, offer of salvation. So to an Arminian, man isn't just dead, isn't dead, he's just sick and in the process of dying. Okay, so does that make sense? Okay, so back to Tulip. The U is unconditional election. Calvinistic view, God chose or elected certain individuals whom he would ultimately save. This election is unconditional. It's an act of grace. And when does the Bible say that God made this choice? For the foundations of the earth, yes. Ephesians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So by this act, God chose those who would be delivered from sin and, re and brought to repentance and saving faith. And this election is unconditional because it's not based on anything that we have inside us. We can't claim anything that makes us deserve it. Romans 10, I'm sorry, Romans 9, 10 to, to 11 said, Remember, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
very clear. He's saying, God is saying, I want, I want you to be very clear to you that I'm making this choice based on my choice, not based on anything in you. Arminian view, election is based on God's prescience. God essentially looks down the corridors of time, sees who will choose him, and then he chooses them. Now, does that strike you as making election completely superfluous? I mean, why does the Bible even talk about election? If you really think about that, it just completely neutralizes the entire election concept. That makes man sovereign. Exactly, which is the whole point, because <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> okay, L. The L in TULIP is limited atonement. Now, this is the hardest one for Arminians to get over, and it was for me. The atonement, Christ's sacrifice for our sin, is sufficient for every human being, but effective only for those who trust in him. It is not limited in worth or sufficiency, but the saving effectiveness of the atonement is limited to those for whom that saving work was prepared. In other words, Christ's death atoned for those he had elected and not for anyone else. Just a couple of proof texts. 3. Matthew 1.21 And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. John 10.11 and 15 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and the Father knows me. Even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And here's the good one, Acts 20:28. 20, Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Arminian view, Christ's death atoned for all people without exception, and those who choose, to be, choose him benefit from it. <clears throat> uh, the I in tulip, irresistible grace. This means that the resistance that all men exert against God is miraculously overcome by God's saving grace on those whom he chose. John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Ephesians 2.1 and 5, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, even though even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Arminian view, man has no innate res resistance to God and is capable himself of overcoming any resistance that he might feel. And P in TULIP, perseverance of the saints. All who are justified will, will win the fight of faith. They will persevere in faith and will not surrender finally to the enemy of their souls. In the words of one of my favorite songs, we are fighting a bat battle that he has already won. I hope you all feel the same. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Arminian view says, they believe this to a point, but they refer to it as eternal security. But they, what they decide is that once a person decides for themselves to accept Jesus, 
that they will never be lost. I could go into that, and maybe I will in another lesson. I, I, when I was growing up, uh, many times I questioned my salvation based on what something I read in the Bible, and my direction was open your Bible, look at the little card you signed when you walked down the aisle when you were 12. Okay, I signed that, I remember, I made that decision, so you're good. Okay, so that was a summary. Now let's start looking at the first point of Calvinism, or the do first doctrine of grace, which is total depravity. So what is depravity anyway? The dictionary definition is moral corruption or wickedness. The theological definition is the innate corruption of human nature due to original sin. So depravity is man's natural condition before, before God does anything to restrain or transform. Our depravity is total, which means that it reaches all aspects of our life, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, everything. It's like a cancer that works its way through the entire body. R.C. Spall used to say that it's not limited to your mind. Your mind is also corrupt because of total depravity, because your mind is an extension of your brain. Romans 3, 10 to 18 makes this real clear. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it goes on. And it doesn't get more flattering from there. Now that's a sad commentary on the condition of man prior to salvation. But it doesn't mean that man is as evil as they can be. That condition would be called utter depravity. And that condition doesn't exist in man, only in Satan. Think about it. Even the most evil people do good things sometimes. I think I pointed out one time that if you insult a mass murderer's mother, they're probably going to come after you, right? God gives a level of grace to all people, and we refer to this as common grace. In Acts 17:17, 17, 17, Paul declared to the people at Lystra that God did you good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In Matthew 5:45, Jesus said that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, one of the functions of this common grace is to restrain people from being totally evil. But it also allows even unsaved people to do good things. Most of us know non-Christians that we would classify as good people, right? Even, we would say, they're assets to society. But here's the important distinction, and this is where it gets interesting. The Bible tells us that even good deeds if not done on the basis of faith, are sinful in God's eyes. Now that seems strange to us, but it's what the Bible says. It's strange to us to think that good deeds done by an unregenerate person can be sin in God's eyes. The reason we think it's weird is because we judge deeds by human standards. 
but the Bible says that everything done apart from faith is evil. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Why? Because acting in faith glorifies God. And all humans, Christian or not, are commanded to glorify God in every detail of their lives. Just because you're not a Christian doesn't leave you off the hook, right? Failing to rely on God for even the most basic action or thought brings glory to me, right? And that's the essence of sin, even if the deed itself accords with God's word. So let's break that down. You bring food to somebody who's bedridden. If it's not done in faith and reliance on God, it's sin. Sound weird? Here's another example. Say you ask your son to wash the car before he takes his, son, his friends to a ball game. And he says he doesn't want to. It's clean enough. I'm just taking them to the ball game. So you say, well, if you want to use the car tonight, you're going to have to wash it. And so he storms out. Later on, you look out the window and there he is washing the car, but he's jerking his hands around. He's throwing the sponge and he's stomping. So it's clear he's washing the car. He's obeying you, but he's not doing it because he loves you. And he's not doing it because he wants to honor you. He's doing it because he wants to take his buddies to the game. So it's external obedience. His heart is wrong. And this is what it means for a human virtue, uh, I'm sorry, this is what it means that all human virtue is depraved if not from a heart of love and honor to the Heavenly Father. Even if the behavior conforms to biblical requirements. So apart from God's grace, people essentially operate out of what we call enlightened self-interest. So we keep the speed limit but do we do it because it's right, or do we do it because we don't want higher insurance rates? It's a sad reality that at most times people do the right thing only to avoid consequences, the consequences of doing the wrong thing. If the police announced that they're going on vacation for a month, what do you think our town would look like after about three weeks? Now remember, and I'm going back here, that the, the condition of man's heart will never be recognized by people who compare themselves to other people. Romans 14.23 says that, our depravity, that depravity is our condition in relation to God primarily and only secondarily in relation to people. So unless we understand that, we will never fully comprehend the, to the totality of our corruption. Man's depravity is total in four ways. First, natural man is in total rebellion against God. When I talk about natural man, remember this is pre-conversion person. Apart from God's grace, person wouldn't think about, much less appreciate the holiness of God. It would never gladly t submit to his authority Depraved men can be religious and philanthropic. They can pray, they can give to the poor, and so on. But Matthew 6 says that their religion is nothing less than rebellion 
against their Creator, no matter what they do. Religious activity that does not come from a childlike trust in God is man-centered and displeasing to God. In fact, religion is many times where people find the justification for acting contrary to God's word. Think about the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics generally believe that they can go out on Saturday night and have a raucous time as long as they fix it with confession, right? Okay, so that's the first point. Man is in total rebellion against God. Number two, man, natural man does not seek after God. It's a myth that people say they're seeking God, for at least for who, who he truly is. They may seek him when someone is sick or dying, or they may seek him when they want something from him. They want the girl, or they want the job, or whatever. But apart from conversion, no one seeks God naturally from their heart, and no one will ever find him. So those who claim to be seeking him are generally looking for a God that fits into the box they've made. And that's not seeking God. That's making a God in your own image. So listen to what John 3, 20 and 21 says about unconverted people when they're confronted by who the true God is. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, apart from the grace of God, all men hate the light. They hate God. They avoid it like the plague. They don't want their evil to be exposed. Now, it used to be, here's, here's some evidence for that, Steve. It used to be that even 20, 25 years ago, even the most avid unbeliever would at least argue with us, right? But nowadays, because hearing the truth causes conviction, this cancel culture just wants to silence us. They used to say, I think you're wrong because... Now they say, shut up. You don't have the right to have that opinion. But what they're really doing by silencing us is keeping their corruption under wraps. As long as everyone else is doing it and we Christians are gagged, everything's cool, right? So, number three, everything that natural man does is sin. And we talked about this before, just br briefly again. Romans 7.18 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. If you read your Bible carefully, it will occur to you that God, that to God, motives are just as important as actions. So here's the question. How does a non-Christian obey the command to glorify God in everything they do, if there are motives or anything other than that? This is the why, why the Bible says that everything done apart from faith is sin. It's impossible for an unregenerate heart to seek God's glory, and therefore unregenerate, act, sorry, unregenerate actions can be nothing but sin in God's eyes. An extension of that principle is the fact that people can use skills given by God 
for good or for evil. Let's say you have a police detective who is an expert in preventing bank robberies. He learns all the ins and outs of the criminals, all the ins and outs of the bank security, and is able to expertly prevent bank robberies. Well, he can use that same skill to become a really good bank robber, right? If the detective has a bad heart, he can just turn that thing right around and become a completely undetectable bank robber. But as right-thinking Christians, we have to understand that whether the detective uses his skills for good or evil, if it isn't from faith, both are sin. Again, weird. Okay, number four, natural man is under God's sentence of eternal punishment. Ephesians 2.3 says what we were children of wrath. What does that mean? In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, on the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will certainly die. Now, we all know Adam didn't immediately die. But in God's eyes, they were as good as dead. Had God not, God not intervened, every human being born after Adam would have lived and died under an eternal death sentence. Now, someone approached me last week after, afterwards and said that at the time of the fall, God's Spirit didn't actually die in us, but that it was rather it was withdrawn when Adam sinned. But I, th I think kind of that's semantics, because what happens if you take a human person and you withdraw their spirit? They die. <clears throat> so in the same sense, when God withdrew his spirit, the person became spiritually dead. And it's my opinion that is why the Bible describes non-regenerate people as dead. So in summary, Total depravity means that our rebellion against God is total, our inability, our rebellion against God is total, our inability to submit to God or reform ourselves is total, and we are therefore totally deserving of his punishment. That's total depravity in a nutshell. Now, I can't overstate how important it is that we all understand what our condition was before our conversion. This is condition of total depravity. If you think of yourself as having anything less than a total rebellion against God, then you're not going to understand his work of redemption. Even solid Christians fall into this trap, and it's easy to do it. In a world filled with the type of sin that we see around us, it's really easy to see ourselves as not that bad, right? If, we have, if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't view ourselves from the standpoint of God's righteousness. We may have head knowledge that we're sinners, but we don't tend to really understand the implications. We don't walk around with those implications. So no matter how benign sin no matter how benign we may think it is, whether it's a white lie or anything, R.C. Sproul used to say that one minor infraction, just one white lie, just one word uttered in vain against God, is nothing less than cosmic treason against our Creator. 
But if we humble ourselves under the truth of total depravity, we will see and appreciate the glory and wonder of God's redemption or God's regeneration. So, in review, total depravity renders unregenerate man incapable of seeing any good in God. In our unregenerate state, we want nothing to do with God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what the Bible says about our condition. But let me conclude by saying that this is a two-edged sword. God does not want us to forget what our, what our unregenerate condition was before him. But he also doesn't want us to stew in it. Okay? He has not left us in our depravity. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I hope that brings an amen to your heart. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for not only the truth of total depravity, but the truth of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you're not only a God of wrath, you're not only a God of justice, but you're a God of kindness and mercy and patience. Lord, help us to, in coming weeks, to really understand more about you and how you operate in our salvation. And Lord, we ask that as a result, you'll be more precious in our eyes. Lord, help us as we go into church today that, that you'll help us to come out new people in some way. Help us to hear your voice and help us to worship you and how you deserve to be worshipped. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.